Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning in your word, and I pray that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us. God, that you would change us. God, convict us. Lord, if, if you don't move in our hearts and in our lives and in our church, God, then nothing happens. So we ask you to move with power, ask you to move with might. God, for your glory and honor, in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Turn your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 19. This is going to be a one of those messages and actually a passage of Scripture that's it's, it's a little disturbing. Uh, it's, it's actually one of those things that's difficult at times even to kind of wrap your head around and understand. And so we're going to journey through this together and, and talk a little bit. I, um, I'll say we have, I have two points, and then I have um, a, a look at five different people that you can be in the midst of Genesis chapter 19, really into 18 and into chapter 19. So two points and then five um, different people that you can become. So I'm going to read through pretty much all of, almost all of chapter 19. Uh, and that's going to take us a little bit, and I know that's a, a, a challenge for us sometimes to follow along. So just go ahead and turn there. I read out of the New American Standard Version, and I know you may have a different version, to, but try to, uh, try to keep up here, and it's going to be a good time and, as we journey through this together. So uh, reading this, it says, Now two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate to meet them. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to, out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they passed, pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law and were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. 
but he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stand, stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, O no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. For behold, this town is near enough to flee, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun, and the, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he saw, behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. And he overthrew the cities which Lot lived. One of the reasons that when I, when I read that, I find that to be kind of a difficult passage of Scripture. Because in our, in our minds, in, in our life, we, we get to the place where we think they deserve it. And we think that we're better than they are, and so we think they deserve it and we don't deserve it. And so we read something like this, and, and, and you know, we feel a little bad and but we approach it and there's really no change in our lives. We look at it and we don't look at it from the perspective of how, how does this apply to me and what does this mean to me and, and, and how do I grow from this particular text? Because we're talking about a very, very serious chapter of Scripture. Because we're talking about the judgment of God. That, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the judgment of God as in, in this context there was great sin in an incredibly wicked city. And because there was great sin and this city was incredibly wicked, God moved to destroy the city. In fact, if, if you were here last week or if you've heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that um, in the previous chapter of Genesis, in chapter 18, Abraham stood before God. He, he was in the presence of God. He drew near in the presence of God. And he says, God, please, if we find 50 righteous people in the city, would you, would you hold off your judgment? Would you hold off your destruction of the city if we can find 50? And God says, sure, if we find 50. And, and Abraham realizes, wait a minute, maybe that's too many people. Maybe, God, if there's 45, or God, if there's 40, or if there's 30, or 20, or, and, and it winds up in, in Genesis chapter 18, like, God, if there's 10 people, if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare the entire city and all of its sin and all of its wickedness? Would you spare it on behalf of the 10? And God says, 
Yes. But what you find is there's not ten. And we don't know the condition of Lot's family. All that we know is in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter calls Lot a righteous person. So what we know for certain is there's one. And that's because of the New Testament. There's nothing in your life that you would read into Genesis chapter 19, chapter 18. There's nothing that you would read that would make you think that Lot was a righteous person. But God was willing to say, I will not judge them if we find ten. And see, when we talk about the judgment of God, it makes us a little uncomfortable, at least it should. And so there's two truths in in this particular text that, that I want to pull out. And the first one is this, is that God's judgment is just and certain. If you're taking notes, that's in your, in your note. That's, that's the point. Is that God's judgment is just and certain. Now think about that for a minute. How many of us really would say that that's a just response? Because see, in our minds we go, well, God's a God of love, or God's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's all touchy-feely and those types of things. And we don't want to really go, this, this is right. God's judgment is just. It's just. I heard, I, heard, I heard one person say that it's not, it, it's not fair. Fair went out in the Garden of Eden. Nothing's fair anymore. We're not talking about fair, but we're talking about just. And when you talk about just, then you and I can kind of wrap our head around that a little bit because we're talking about um, the idea of justice. And, and let's face it, there's enough courtroom dramas out there right? So you can understand what's just and, and what's right and justice, and you want justice to be served and all those types of things. But the problem is you've got to weigh this in this context against the standard of God. And that's honestly where all of us should feel a little uncomfortable, is the standard isn't another person. The standard isn't like your person to your right or to your left. I mean, you might be sitting there next to the person to your right or your left, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Because you know them a little bit. I mean, you might be thinking about them going, well, you know, I know kind of what they're doing, and I know what they're like, and I know how they do this and how they treat people, and so you're, you're kind of feeling pretty good about you. But see, the problem is when you talk about justice in the perspective of God, we're not talking about somebody else in the room. Because we can always look at ourselves with somebody else in the room, and with one person you might make yourself feel better, but with another person you might go, oh, I don't quite measure up to where they are. But the, the, the reality of it is, we're talking about God being the standard. We're talking about God's holiness being the standard. We're talking about God's righteousness being the standard. And we're talking about God's justice and the fact that God is holy and He is righteous, which means that sin needs to be dealt with. And when we understand that sin needs to be dealt with, then we can come to the place where we go, God's judgment is just, and it is certain. It is certain. It may not, in your life, in my life, it may not look like Sodom and Gomorrah. I I know there's times that we see things happening in the world and we think, oh, well, that's God's judgment. may not look like that, but God one day will judge everything. And 
it is just and it is certain and it's something that you can count on in your life. And with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, their sinfulness and their wickedness had been an outcry against God. And, and really, we're in Genesis 19, and this, this has been a repeated pattern in the book of Genesis, which is thousands of years ago. I mean, think about the pattern here. You've got Noah and the destruction of the world by the flood. And what is happening there? You've got the wickedness and the sinfulness of man crying out against God. And so God moves and he judges the world and he wipes everybody out except for Noah and Noah's wife and his three sons and their wives and the animals. Wipes it all out. And then you've got the Tower of Babel. Just a few chapters after that in Genesis, now there's years that pass by, but in, in, when we're looking back, I mean, this is all happening, and what is God doing? He is judging people for their sinfulness. God's judgment is just and certain because the standard is God. The standard is God in his holiness and his righteousness. Sodom and Gomorrah, you think about how incredibly wicked that city was. And, and it's, very, it's difficult to talk about that and, and really the, the, and how incredibly wicked it is with, um, with kids in the room. I mean, honestly, when you really get down to it, you've got um, not, it wasn't just homosexuality, okay? And that's where some people go, well, it's homosexual. Yes, that's part of it. But the other part of it is they wanted to force it, okay, which is called rape. Okay, so it's, it's, I mean, you're talking about an extreme thing. Now, the other part of it with Sodom and Gomorrah is it wasn't just a few people. It wasn't just a few people. When you begin, if you dig into that text and you begin to read what's going on, Lot sitting at the city gate, see these two men approaching. And he knows what will happen to these two men. He knows what will happen, so he convinces them to go to his house. And he goes into his house, and he closes the door, and he serves them a feast. And then the men of the city, Scripture tells us the men of the city, young and old, from every quarter of the city, show up at Lot's house. Lot, bring those men out so we can do what we do to them. Lot being, I guess, somewhat wise in the moment, kind of sneaks out the door, closes it behind him, thinking he's protecting these guys. And the men of the city say, bring them out. Lot's trying to bargain with him, he's trying to convince him, trying to give him his daughters instead of the men. The crowd turns against Lot and says, all right, fine, you thought we were going to do these men as bad. Guess what? We're going to do even worse to you. And the men inside the house, the angels inside the house, they open the door, they drag Lot inside, they strike all the men with blindness so that they can't find the door. Friends, this is an exceedingly, incredibly wicked, wicked city. It wasn't just one or two people. It wasn't just a pocket. It was all of the men, young and old, from every quarter, were wicked. It had been, listen, this is what happens. It had been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. It was an incredibly wicked place. And God's judgment was just and it was certain. He was willing to say, if ten are righteous, if ten are righteous, then we'll stay off judgment. Which brings us to the second point in this. Not only is God's judgment just and certain, but you also 
we'll see that um, God's grace and mercy, God's grace and mercy are on display even in judgment. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I think of grace and mercy, I mean, it's to me something really worth getting excited about. Because, I mean, the songs that we sang up here, uh, words of them, the, what they're telling, the truth that they're talking about, how um, God's mighty to save, or the, the truth that God is holy. I mean, those truths are really, really um, good for us to know. So when you talk about grace and mercy, you begin to realize, now there's something really great, significant about that in my life. And, and I always go to, I, I, I find myself needing to tell you grace and mercy. Because most of the time people will, will spout out a little definition or whatever, but I, I try to remind you from time to time, just what is grace and what is mercy? Because they are different. And definitions I go to are this. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So an example of that is um, if you've had children or maybe you have children in your home and they do something that demands punishment, if they do something that requires for you to punish them and you choose not to punish them, that's mercy. Not, they deserve it. They should get it. It should be carried out in their life. Mercy is not giving them what they deserve, meaning punishment. And so, when you think of God's grace and mercy, that's the first step. Now, grace is different. Grace is even, to me, it's even better than mercy. Because grace is now getting what you don't deserve. Okay? So, mercy is, I'm I'm going to stay off punishment. You're you're not going to get punished for what you should. Mercy is saying, I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve, something that you didn't earn, something that you, you just you can't do anything to get it. Here it is. It would be kind of like, I mean, and this is such a bad illustration, but instead of punishing your kids, you decide to reward them with um, an ice cream sundae. Now, kids, don't go home and go, well, you know, grace and mercy, Pastor talked about this morning, so instead of being punished, why don't we just go ahead and have an ice cream sundae? But it's the idea of instead of getting what you deserve, you get something that you don't deserve. Now, in the context of our relationship with God, mercy is that because of Jesus, you're not going to receive the judgment and the punishment that is due you because of sin that's in your life. Now, grace is that God is going to reward you with a relationship with himself. God is going to reward you with good things. There's nothing you did to deserve it. There's nothing you did to earn it. It's just simply the grace and mercy of God. See, the reality of it is there's nobody in this room that has done anything to earn a relationship with God. There's nothing anybody in this room has done to deserve to go to heaven when you die. You you don't. You, You haven't gone to church enough. You haven't memorized enough verses of the Bible. You haven't done enough Bible studies. You haven't spent enough time praying. You haven't helped enough um, people in your life, the needy. You haven't, you have, you can't do enough to earn heaven or a relationship with God when you die. It simply boils down to grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. You didn't do anything. You can't do anything. It's God's grace. It's God's mercy. Turn with me for a minute to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and it, it should pop up on the screen here so you can follow along in case you don't have a Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 is a, is a neat um, description for us about how we, we used to be 
and then how we are today. And it has nothing to do with you. That's the beauty of it. So Paul writes, now remember Paul, if, if I need to remind you, Paul is like, I mean, the really religious guy in the room. Now, I don't know who that might be here. I don't know like, who would be like the religious rock star that you've got the most verses of the Bible memorized or you know um, all of the correct theological terms. Or I, I don't know who that is in this room, but usually there's a few in this room that, that like, they're, they're it. And that was Paul. I mean, Paul had like the entire Old Testament memorized. Okay, I mean, he was um, like of the tribe of Benjamin, he tells us. I mean, he, he used to go around persecuting the church, and then he met Jesus, and his life changed. But I mean, Paul's got something of a pedigree. He's got something to brag about. He would be the guy that has the Ph.D. and all of the other letters after his name. I mean, he was really something. But he writes, and in reference to this relationship with God, he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's, that's great. He says, you were. Don't you love that when people, I do that at times. In fact, a lot of times in the article that I'm writing um, on, during the week, I say, you, 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 and you think I'm pointing the finger at you, and it's really just all of us. But Paul's writing, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, now he brings himself into the picture. He brings himself into the picture. He says, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Not only that, that's, that's me, that's my parenthetical statement. He says, um, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. You might want to underline that part. Not of yourselves. So that no one can boast is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. So that you can't brag. You can't go, hey, look at me. I'm a good person. Look at me. I mean, that's, that's Lot's story. I mean, Lot has, he cannot brag about anything in the midst of this, the, what we see in Genesis chapter 19. There's nothing in his life that speaks to you deserve to escape the judgment that's coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. God's grace and God's mercy are on display, even in judgment. And friends, for us, it's going to come in the most beautiful way. When at the, the end of time, where we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're welcomed into the family. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's, to me, like the, the, the most beautiful part of that judgment is going, yes, it's on display, grace and mercy. We get God. We get a relationship. We get heaven. We get all that goes with it. And then the greatest thing about it is that's not it. That's not all of it. There's more. It's like for some people, it's like they just want to, they want to get out of hell by the skin of their teeth kind of thing. But God says, no, I'm going to pour even more out on you. And that's the beauty of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, not only did he save you, but now what's he doing? He raised you with Christ. He seated you with him. There's more. That's the grace 
mercy is that you're not going to be judged because Jesus took your judgment. And then grace is he's seating you at the right hand of Christ. How beautiful that is. Not anything you can do to deserve it. It's all grace. It's all mercy. It's all God's doing. It's all God's work. And God's grace and mercy are on display even in judgment. Genesis chapter 19, if you go back there, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Verse 16 in particular. Okay, verse 16 in particular. So, um, the, the whole thing went down. We read it, we talked about it. And, and they basically, things quiet down, and the morning comes. And the men look at Lot and they say, okay, you got to get your stuff. You got to get your, your, your family. You got to get your things. We're getting out of here. And verse 16, listen to what happens. You want to talk about grace and mercy? I mean, here he says, but he hesitated. Can you believe that? I just, I found that to be the, one of the most disturbing parts of this. I mean, Lot's watched the whole thing go down with these men wanting the angels to come out and do what they're going to do to him. I mean, he's watching the whole thing go down, and, and then they have this conversation like, okay, let's go, and he hesitates. Like, well, I'm not sure I'm ready. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. He hesitates, and then listen to what happens. So the men, this is grace and mercy, guys. This is it. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. And listen, right here. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Get a picture. Two men. Here's Lot. Here's his wife. The other guy's got his two daughters, and they're going. It's like, you can't hesitate, buddy. It's time to go. Let's go. And they just they get him outside the city. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy on display, even in the midst of judgment. I mean, how easy would it have been to say, fine, suit yourself. You don't want to come? Great. But see, in God's sovereignty and in his love for righteous lot, we got to drag him out. We got to drag him out. His grace and mercy are on display, even in the midst of judgment. So, when you look at Genesis 19, there's, there's really there's five different people in this. And it becomes the question of, so which one are you? Of the five people that I describe here, ask yourself the question, which one am I? Who am I in the, in the context of this? The first one, the first person that I would, I would say is here is Abraham. Abraham, the man of prayer. Abraham, the man of prayer found in Genesis, end of chapter 18, uh, right there, kind of in the middle of chapter 19, verses 26, 27, 28, right in there. But he's a man of prayer. And this is what happens. This is why I say, I mean, maybe this is us, that you hear about the judgment of God. And you know there's something that you have to do. You know that if you went into the city and you try to drag Lot out, there's nothing that you can do. So what does Abraham do? He finds himself in the presence of God. And he says, God, would you spare the city if there's 50, there's 45? He begins to intercede on behalf of the people who would be the righteous ones. He begins to intercede for them, saying, God, would you move? Would you act? Would you do something to spare them? Abraham's a man of prayer. Doesn't mean he's perfect. 
I hope you realize that about Abraham. Abraham doesn't, doesn't nail it all, all the days of his life. In fact, if you were to trace his life, you realize that he made some major mistakes, goes down to Egypt, lies about his wife, um, being his sister, and uh, then receives all the goods, comes out of Egypt. You know, bad things he does for sure. He winds up, even though God promised him he would have a son, he winds up having a child with his wife's servant, and I mean, just a big old mess. But guess what? Even in the midst of his sin, he would run back to his God. Even in the midst of his sin, he would run back to his God. And in the presence of God, he would find grace, he would find mercy, and he would find forgiveness. Abraham wasn't perfect, but Abraham became a man of prayer. I wonder if that's some of you in here that when we talk about the judgment of God, you're that person that you're praying. You know people who are lost. You know people that don't have that relationship with God, and you're praying. You're interceding for them. The second kind of person in Genesis chapter 19 is somebody like Lot. You'd say it this way. He's somebody who's saved, (laughs) but barely. (laughs) Meaning that there, there's really no evidence of it in his life. I mean, we, like I said, we only know he's righteous because of what the New Testament tells us. And so he's somebody who is saved, but if you're an outsider looking at him, you're like, there's nothing in his life. And for some of us, that's, that's the, our story. It's like we're saved, but it's not really something that you, you are. It's not, it's not like the, the core of it all. It's not like how you live your life. You've decided you want to live your life however you want to live your life, and maybe you're just holding on to Jesus as that fire insurance card, and you want to slap it down on the table one day at the end of time, and you want to go, I got my Jesus card. But I live life however I wanted to live life. And friends, that's Lot. That's the story of Lot when you really get down to it. He lived and did what he wanted to do. He had been in Egypt with Abraham and he saw how good and how right and how fun the world was and and treated him. He says, I want more of that. So when it came time for them to separate, he went to that area that was the most enticing to the eyes where he could find the most pleasure of the flesh. And And Scripture tells us he moved towards the city. He pitched his tent outside the city. He moved into the city. And then right here in Genesis chapter 18, you find him really um, at the gate of the city. And at the gate of the city meant that he had found his way into a position of power and influence in the city. And let's face it, with as wicked and sinful as that city was, he compromised his morals, He compromised his walk with the Lord. He compromised all of those things in order to rise to that position in the city. This city, as wicked as it was, as sinful as it was, would not have promoted somebody to that position of leadership without him having compromised his walk with the Lord. But that's what he wanted. He saved relationship with the Lord kind of in the background. Maybe it's there. I go to church once in a while. But when you look at my life, there's nothing that says I'm walking with Jesus today. That's the second kind of person. The third kind of person in here, I'll term it this way. They're haters of God. They're haters 
of God. Now, the truth of it is there's probably not any of those in this room. There could be, but there's probably not because somebody who feels that passionately against God You know, they're a hater of God. They don't want anything to do with religion. They don't want anything to do with God talk or God conversation. I mean, they are haters of God. And I don't know that anybody who who really feels that strongly and has that kind of a position with God that they're going to show up and set aside an hour, hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday to come and hear somebody talk about God and to come and hear people sing about God. So I, I doubt there's any haters of God in this room. Now, there could be. It could be that you're sitting there and somebody dragged you to come here, somebody convinced you to show up, and you did, and you can't stand it, and you're going nuts, and you want to leave, and you want to run out. And friend, I want to tell you that you, you need to dig into the truth of who God is a little bit. Because there's people like, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and they hate God, and they hate everything God stands for, and they hate everything about Him. And they hate people that have anything to do with him. There's just people that are haters of God. The fourth kind of person that you see in Genesis um, chapter 19 is you see people who are deaf to the warnings. Deaf, D-E-A-F, to the warnings. And those are the people that, that you see lot as, as they're getting ready to get out of the city, they're getting ready to leave. And, and what do the men tell them? They say, go and get your family. Go and get the people that are with you. Go and get them. Go and get them. And Lot warned them. Lot said, come on, the city's about to be destroyed. Come on, get your things and come with us. Come on, let's go. And what what does Scripture tell us? That they looked at him as if he were jesting. As if he were joking. And they're like, oh, Lot, get out of here, you big joker, you. That's not going to happen. We're not listening to you. You don't know what you're talking about, man. Forget it. And you want to know one of the reasons that they thought that? Because they're sitting there going, this guy, we've never heard him talk about God. This guy? And he's going to tell us that God's going to judge this city, so let's get out? He had lost his ability to actually influence them for God. And they thought, oh, he's just joking. They're deaf to the warnings. Some of you in this room are deaf to the warnings. Some of you have sat in a a context like this before, maybe this church, maybe somewhere else, maybe with your friends. You sat over coffee and they've warned you, they've told you that, listen, you can't have a relationship with God without trusting Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You can't get there. And they're trying to tell you, they're trying to say you can't earn your way there. You You can't help enough people. You can't go to, you can't do it. And they've pleaded with you, and they've begged you, and they've talked to you, and you're deaf to the warnings. And there's going to come a day when, when time is going to run out of your life and your opportunity for you to respond and enter into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. There's going to come a time when your life is over. Scripture tells us that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You've been deaf to the warnings that your friends, that your family, that sometimes your pastor has spoken over you saying, please, please heed the warnings. You cannot, you cannot have a relationship with God the Father except through Jesus Christ. 
please don't be deaf to the warnings any longer. Please don't be deaf to the warnings any longer. The last type of person that you find in Genesis chapter 19 comes from the part of the story about Lot's wife. So they're leaving, they're fleeing the city. And Scripture says that she's behind Lot and she looks back. And immediately she turns into a pillar of salt. Some of you are like Lot's wife. Some of you have become so attached to the world. You don't want to let it go. For some of you, that's the reason that you've been deaf to the warnings. You're like, I don't want to give up what I've got. I don't want to give up the life that I've built, the life that I've established. And so you've just gotten to a place where I'm, I'm deaf. I'm not listening because you're so attached. You don't want to let go of it. You don't want to let go of those possessions that you have. You don't want to let go of the immoral relationship that you may find yourself in. You don't want to let go of, of just the immoral behavior, the unethical behavior that you've, you've created as a pattern of your life. You're so attached to it. You're so attached to the possessions and those types of things. You don't want to let them go. Imagine being Lot's wife. Imagine being um, the woman as your husband says, as he's listening to these two men, let's get our things and we're going to leave the city. She wants to take everything with her. She wants to pack up the entire house, and she's like, I want to take this, and I want she to become so attached. And the, the truth of it is she would want to take all of her friends with her because she doesn't want anything to change in her life. She's become so attached to the world. So there's five different people that you see in this context. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you Abraham? Are you Lot? Are you the men of the city? Are you those related to Lot? Or maybe you're Lot's wife. The reality of it is we're all one of them. Sometimes maybe we're more than one. Like we want to be this spiritual person so we begin to intercede, but yet we still have this attachment to the world. We're still not wanting to let go of things. And I would challenge you today, so which one are you? And then ask yourself the question, who do you want to become? Who do you want to become? Charles Finney was a, a very well-known preacher a long time ago. He actually went to school and studied law. He got a law school and somebody asked him, what's next? He says, what's next is I want to get a job. Cool. Then what? Well, then I want to I wanna have a family. Great, then what? Well, then, then I want to I wanna get rich. I mean, that's why I went to be a lawyer. I wanted to get rich. I want to be wealthy. Then what? Well, then I want to be able to retire. And then what? And he says, well, I guess I die. And the guy says, and then what? And he says, well, I guess the judgment. It rocked him to the core. And he never went into the profession of being an attorney. He became a preacher. Because he began to realize, wait a minute, there's more. 
I can get wealth and I can retire and then I'm going to die. And then what? Well, then the judgment. Well, guess what? The only way to escape the judgment of God is through Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us in John chapter 3, which is maybe the most famous chapter in all of the Bible, it says, for those of you who do not have Jesus, the wrath of God abides on you. For those of us that have Jesus, guess what? Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. We're not judged based on the sin that's in our life. We're judged based upon the relationship we have with Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. I don't know where you are today in your life. I don't know where you are today in your relationship with God, but here's my plea. Don't leave here today without knowing for certain that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the number one priority for you. Don't leave here today thinking that you're okay with God because you've, you've come to church or you've given enough money or you've helped enough people in need, you've built enough houses for poor people. Don't, don't, don't do that. Leave here today knowing that you're right with God because of Jesus. And then secondly, for those of you who you know that, you're like, I'm, I know that, I know that, become an Abraham today and begin interceding on behalf of people you know who are lost. Begin interceding for them. Begin asking God to move, to draw them to himself, to move in their life, to do whatever it takes, that they would be able to enter a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. We're going to close our time together singing this great song. I'm going to ask if you would to stand with me. We're going to have a word of prayer. If you want to make a decision today to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I ask you to come forward. Let's talk about that today. Don't leave here today not knowing for sure. Let's talk about it. It's all right. Everybody that has uh, trusted Jesus in this room at one time or another has walked down front during a service like this. Don't feel bad about it. Don't, don't worry about it. Come down front and talk to us. Maybe you need to deal with sin in your life today. Guess what? Today's the day to do it. We all got sin. Let's deal with it, and let's move forward. Maybe you just need to begin praying for somebody you know who's lost. Whatever that decision is today, let's make that decision and do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you for, God, grace and mercy. Wow. Thank you that we have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. God, I know there's people in this room who don't know you. So, Father, I pray that in this moment right now, you are drawing them to yourself. God, make it irresistible. Draw them. Grace and mercy. Pour it over them. Lavishly pour it over them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.